1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're continuing in a series looking at different ways that the Bible pictures the people of God, different metaphors and the meaning that they have for our lives. And so far, we've seen several metaphors that occur both in the Old and the New Testament. For instance, we've seen that the church is pictured as a plant to tell us that our ultimate source of life is in Christ, who is the root or the vine. But this morning we turn to one of the metaphors, one of the pictures that occurs predominantly in the New Testament. It awaited the coming of Christ, and in this we discover something very important about how you and I relate to him, but also to one another. Here we're going to see that the church is often likened to a human body, a human body. Now this metaphor occurs all throughout the New Testament. But arguably the most famous, the most memorable time is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So let's give our attention to the reading beginning at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts we treat with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we sit under the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the service, but now in particular, we thank you that your Holy Spirit works in and through the sacred scriptures. We ask that you would please guide us not only to understand them rightly as you intend, but also that you would please incline us to respond just as you desire. Soften us where we may be hard. Increase our confidence in your mercy where we feel convicted in every way for the glory of Christ, for the joy of your people, for the benefit of the world into which you send us, we ask that you would please grant us 
the very things that we ask, the very response you want. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote to this church at a time when they were particularly dysfunctional. All churches have their issues, but when you compare the various epistles in the New Testament, you find the church, the gathering of God's people living in the city of Corinth, were especially dysfunctional. Some of that had simply to do with the context they were in. Corinth as a city was a Roman outpost in a Greek area. And then the church itself, now composed of both Greek and Roman people who were not identical and didn't view one another as identical, then into that mix you have Jewish believers. You have rich and poor, slave and free, male and female. Ordinarily at that time, just as it is to a large extent now, all of these different kinds of people would not be found under the same roof seeking to love one another and work with one another in the way that we're called to. Rather, what you find in the Corinthian church is that there are some people who are overemphasizing their or other people's gifts. I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. Or they are underemphasizing the gifts of others or themselves. They think they are so important. Or maybe they think others will find nothing in them of value. And so why even bother to be involved? Add to that all of the sin that is tied up in each one of us. This is a perennial issue. It is hard to be a fully functional local church. There's some dysfunction in every congregation. And it's into this situation that the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul and now leads you this morning to consider a certain picture of the people of God. The Holy Spirit is calling you this morning to set before your heart and your mind at all times this understanding, this picture of the people of God as a living body. A living body pictured like a human. And when we find this analogy in Scripture, it's not just a metaphor. The metaphor is grounded in something very real. What unites this body composed of many members where all of the individual people are pictured like different body parts? What is uniting us? I'm certain that there are many things that unite you individually with others in this room right now. But at the bottom, what unites you is not merely intellectual. It's not simply your beliefs. You can have a lot in common with a lot of people, but that's not what this is talking about. It's not simply causes that you participate in with your hands. It is at the bottom, the Holy Spirit indwelling all of God's people and creating a living spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Even as you see in verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Outwardly, formally, when a person is baptized, they make a visible entrance among the body. But that sacrament is only an outward seal. Apart from faith, you don't have the thing signified. The thing signified in baptism is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for all the benefits that come through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, your body, of course, has many parts. It extends in all directions. 
But you can't say that your spirit is, you know, 10% in your finger and 85% in, you know, your chest. You can't part out your spirit like that. If, God forbid, you were to lose your finger, you haven't lost a portion of your soul. Even so, the Holy Spirit is distributed and with all of the people of God, uniting us, forming a very real union, not only among those below on earth, but those in glory. We believe in the communion of the saints. We are united with people who have gone before us into glory. There is one body. And so as we consider this morning what it means to belong to the body of Christ, we're going to look at it under really three different ideas. First, we're going to see what this picture means in terms of how Christ relates to his people. How does Christ relate to you and to the body as a whole? Secondly, we're going to look at what this tells you about how you relate to the church in a way that means you depend on the body. And then third, we're going to see, because it goes both ways, the body also depends on you for full thriving. So these are the three main ideas. I'll mention each of them as we come back to them. Let's start with that first idea. How do you relate to Jesus Christ in this picture? If the people of God are a body, who is Christ? You know, maybe you regard yourself as a hand. Maybe you regard yourself as a foot. What part of the body is Jesus, according to the scripture? I wonder, you children, how would you answer that? What part of the body is he? The Bible tells us very plainly in many places. For instance, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Quote, says the Father, quote, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Whatever part you are, whatever part somebody else is, Christ is the head. He is the head. You then are not the head. Now, for a moment, appreciate Paul's use of the word head here. He doesn't simply mean something like we might mean, everything above the neckline. Because in this very chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, certain people are called the ears or the eyes. What is Paul really getting at when he says that Jesus is the head? He is, in this sense, using the word head to speak of the center of judgment, reason, will. The one guiding the body. The one who ought to be controlling, ruling, governing, directing the body. That's what he's getting at. For instance, Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is, quote, the head of the body of the church, that in everything he might be preeminent, He takes the lead over the body. Ephesians 5.23 equates this same word head with authority or responsibility for others. Christ is the head. Practically, what does that mean for your life? What does that mean for the life of the church? We might say three things here. First, what this means for you is that no person who professes faith in Christ has life apart from vital union with him. Vital union. Not just an outward profession, but remember, it's the Holy Spirit who transfers the very life, the spiritual life of Christ to us. And we have that life through faith. This is the way in which we drink of the Holy Spirit. 
if you merely identify with the church because of, you know, being born to a Christian family, or the obligations, perhaps, or the awkwardness that you would have with your spouse if you didn't come, or your parents if you resisted, there is no life apart from vital union with him. Can the body live without its head? No. No, it will not. And this analogy is here in the first place to drive you back to that. Am I united with Christ? Then secondly, it should bring you back to a sense of thankfulness. Think for a moment how many of us, even in the past week, may have found ourselves at one point sitting in a position and we start to feel pain. And with our head, we say, I should do something good for my back. I should change my position. And then your head sends all of these signals and your body begins to move and contort itself until you feel, a, I hope, a measure of relief. When the Holy Spirit tells you to see Christ as your head, he is not telling you to see Christ as a tyrant because Christ is sane. He is not harming his body for no reason. He has good will towards every part, the tiniest cuticle. He doesn't just see there a hangnail and want to cut it off. He sees that's a cuticle and it needs to be healed. Christ has goodwill towards each part and goodwill towards the whole body together. And so when you hear this analogy, understand, connect it with goodwill. Christ has a loving union with us. Even be humbled. The Lord of creation who created human bodies wants to be joined with us. He didn't need one. He didn't have a body from eternity. For our sake, he has united himself with humanity. And then third, if he is the head, it means he's in charge. You are not. Even the whole institution of the church is not. Christ is the head of the body. And therefore, I'd ask you whether or not you can say with honesty before the Lord, it is your desire through the work of the Holy Spirit to submit to Christ as your head. I'm not asking you whether or not you do that perfectly or consistently. My own body doesn't perfectly submit to me. I feel all kinds of feelings I don't always want to feel, and my body sometimes behaves in ways I don't prefer. But as a rule, as a rule, God works this in us by the Holy Spirit. Whoever will not have Christ for their head will not be found among the living body in the age to come. So this is the first major idea. When you think about the body, it's how we relate to Christ. But then I want you to look for a moment, look at your hand. How is your hand connected to your head? Is it simply glued to it? No. It has all of this other connective tissue. You've got a wrist, you have a forearm, you've got shoulders, you've got a chest. Your hand is not simply connected to the head, it's connected to the whole body. This is the way God designed the parts to function. So now think for a moment, your hand has dependence on other parts. It depends upon your stomach to digest food. The hand can go grab the food, but it can't digest the food. Even so, every member of Christ's church flourishes only insofar as you have healthy union and communion with the broader body. Each part flourishes only insofar as you have healthy union and communion with the whole body. This is our second main idea, and I want to be very clear about something. 
Some of the pictures that we have looked at and will look at drive us back to seeing Jesus as the ultimate final source of our life. That is very important. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. Christ is the ultimate source. But you can't let those other pictures then cancel out what the Holy Spirit is saying to us here through this picture. In this picture of the body, and in this passage in particular, the Holy Spirit is setting before you the very real need, the very real practical dependence you have upon the broader local congregation. In the context here, he's speaking to a church of just over 100 times that that word church is used in the New Testament. More than 90 times, it's speaking about a local gathering, the visible church. The assembly of people who are all very different from one another, even as the people in Corinth were. And that's because God, who formed the body, has chosen that there would be this mutual interdependence upon one another. Has he given you every gift? No. You may, even if you did think that, and I don't think anybody here is so arrogant as to say so, or even to think it, yet you then will have to look to others to have gifts that you don't have. Verses 8 through 11, which comes just before the passage we read, lists a variety of spiritual gifts. Throughout the New Testament, you find several different lists of the gifts. You have things that we often think of, like the gift of teaching. It's just set here right before you. But then also listed among the gifts is administration. Not everybody thinks about that. But there are those people who are especially good at organizing others or organizing tasks. Then you have a gift called helps. And that is what it sounds like. Just the willingness and the aptitude in a variety of ways to get things done for the good of others. There's a whole variety of gifts. And yet no one person has them all. Look with me at verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. No one of us is a complete body unto ourselves. And yet there are many professing Christians who think that way, whether or not they would say it. They function that way when they separate themselves from a whole variety of persons. They mix only with the same three or five people, even in a local church, as if therein is the body. No, that's just your local area. It's like the ear is locally connected to certain parts of the body. But we need all the parts. And here, what I'm calling you to, what the Holy Spirit is calling you to, is a sense of dependence upon the whole. I need the whole thing. That doesn't mean that you have equally timed out interactions with everyone, but you sense a local church needs a whole variety. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If the Lord has placed someone among us providentially, we need them. We may not yet know how. Just like there are parts of the body that even in the 21st century, scientists are trying to figure out why that's there. And we'll say at times, maybe their primary function is just to humble us. I don't know. But God has chosen. He's placed them there. 
The Lord has purposed every person. And when we understand that and believe it, then we have a tendency, a greater tendency, to look with compassion and love and dependence upon others, not to assume, I I don't need them. We need them. And so I put it to you as a question. Do you feel a need for vital, meaningful, living union and communion with the body? Not just a few parts. Not just the parts that were related to by blood or marriage or by friendship. Do you feel, I need to be united with the people of God? If not, at best, there is numbness. It's like falling asleep on your arm. And you wake up and it's doing its own thing. It doesn't feel like it has need of any other part. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring us back to a sense of needing what he has provided for us. What does he provide for us? By being among a local church that we wouldn't have on our own or simply by informal fellowship. And I'll add, by the way, just think about that. If somebody professes Christ, but their only interaction with believers is two or three people informally out there. You know, they have a few Christian friends and that's it. That is something like having a Petri dish and you're growing a liver and a finger. That is not the kind of vital organic whole that the Lord has called us to. It's unnatural. The people Paul is talking to are a local congregation who are gathering together, who are very different from one another, and yet he says they are one. And in this very passage, as in Ephesians 4, he says that some of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave are gifts of office. A private individual operating out of their private identity cannot hold you accountable in the ways that the Bible describes in Matthew 18, where Jesus says if somebody continues in sin and continues in sin, tell it to the church, the official gathering. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it describes formal accountability and being put out from the church. You can't have that, and the Holy Spirit has told us through the word, we need that. Nor can you have all the variety of gifts. Think about the work of the deacons. The work of the deacons is not primarily to gather the funds as they flow into the center aisle. The work of the deacons is to, on behalf of Christ and his body, administer gifts towards the tangible needs of all. God set this into order. And so I lay it before you as a question. Do you desire to have greater unity for the sake of your dependence? Do you desire that? If you do, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Give thanks. He's at work in you. The world doesn't want that. They don't want it for the right reasons. If you desire that, even if it's weak, thank the Lord for his work in you. Ask that he would do more. Now, this dependence, it goes both ways. I mentioned before, the hand needs the stomach to digest. But the stomach does not go out and gather the food for itself. That'd be a freakish stomach. And yet some people want to do all the things. You have not been called to do all the things, nor is anyone else in the church. And we should never look at any one person in the church and think, well, I'm glad they're here. They'll do it all, or most of it. That's not how the Lord intended it in this picture. The body flourishes when each person, including you, fulfills their God-given function. 
And this brings us to our third and our final idea. Picturing the people of God as a body points you to your God-ordained duty. If you are a member of the body of Christ, you have a God-ordained duty, not just something that you picked because you liked it, but you have a God-ordained duty. Think for a moment. Pause and appreciate. Where did your abilities come from? Humanly speaking, you might have helped to hone some of them. But that's simply human. We have to look deeper than that. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Why are they called gifts? Although we are perhaps becoming all too accustomed to gifting ourselves. Oh, I got myself a Christmas gift. No, you just bought yourself something around Christmas time. The idea of a gift is given to someone else. And the Holy Spirit is the author, the source of these gifts. They're called gifts to remind you you didn't have them from yourself. Some gifts the Holy Spirit grants at the time of or after conversion. Some gifts he grants at the time of or after conversion. Sometimes they don't take shape and appear until long after you've come to faith. Think of many children who make a profession at a young age, and it may not be until, say, their 30s or 40s that real abilities and aptitudes show up relative to certain functions in the church. That's fine. But then other gifts the Holy Spirit grants and develops in people even before they have come to faith. And yet it's still the Holy Spirit anticipating the union that they would have later on. Saul of Tarsus, the Paul of our epistle. Think how many of his gifts were already apparent prior to his coming to faith in Christ. He was clearly a leader. And obviously had tremendous powers of reason. Gargantuan amounts of energy, physically and mentally. Could he say, well, because I had those before I was a believer, therefore those came from me and the other ones... No! Nor should we think that way. Whatever you have, you have from the Spirit. But for whom do you have it? Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In the context here, and we can't let that be washed away, the context here of common good is the common good of the local congregation first. Not simply the common good of your own family, blood and marriage, adoption. Even the world does that. Not simply a a vague kind of do-goodery towards unbelievers. Here, you have it for the body as the body. And so I will put it to you as a question again. Do you strive for, do you long for, greater union and communion with the people of God so that, as the people of God, you may bless and serve them? Not simply as people that you get along with. Not simply as people who are united for a better world in the most vague, secular sense. The body. Do you love it? Do you seek to serve it? And yet there are many who do withdraw from the local church. Or, even if they attend, they withhold 
a large portion of their gifts, their time, their talent, their treasure. Why do they do that? Why might you do that? Maybe you're not doing it now. Maybe you'll do it later. You have to be on your guard. What motivates that? Sometimes it's because people feel, especially if they're younger in the Lord, less mature, they feel that because their gifts aren't like others' gifts, that their gifts aren't as valid or valuable. And so they don't see their place in that church. This happens especially if the congregation itself is unhealthy. Where you say, because I don't have the same interests and abilities as the majority there, I must not fit in. Yet, see what it says in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. We need variety. And yet it is the case that sometimes churches over time will become this grotesque, misshapen assemblage of all the parts trying to be a very similar part. And it is the case, you've seen it I'm sure, that someone who loses a hand maybe can use their foot in ways that ordinarily a hand would function. We thank God that when a congregation is very small, the Lord enables people to work outside their primary gifting. But often what happens is you get something like a cult of rationality on one side, where everybody feels like, I I have to become a, a theological juggernaut who spends the majority of whatever spare time I have after my job and taking care of my kids just reading all the time. As if that's everybody's primary gift. And then on the other side, you have people who think it's not a service if you don't transform it all the time into a soup kitchen. No. There's balance in the body, and there's differences of gifts. And we need all of it. We need all people to be blessed and changed towards the greater function of the whole. And so you shouldn't say that because your gifting or your aptitudes or your inclinations are different than others that you have no part here. Rather, use your words. I plead with you. Ask, how might I serve? And think less about how able you are as how willing you are. Let others decide your ability. It'll go way better for you. If you don't presume that you are gifted in one area or presume that you're not. Sometimes we have people who presume they're a great teacher. And then others have to inform them, no, you're not. (laughs) I I don't mean that as a joke at all. It's, it's, It's true. Sometimes there's arrogance added to that. Or you have others who say, I, I, I don't think I can do that. And it takes someone else saying, please try. And we say, oh, you can. You're surprisingly gifted at this. You surprise yourself. Think first, am I willing? And ask. That's part of the function of the eldership and the diaconate of the church is to direct and to guide the people into the areas where there is need. Others withhold their service for a very different reason, primarily out of fleshly laziness, the desire for ease. And maybe they know it by experience that it is hard to be a servant in the church, especially in the offices, but also in other areas too. The tendency for burnout is real, and it grows even higher when many people say, well, I won't do it then, because then people who are willing do it too much. Think for a moment about the human heart. The human heart, for its health, depends upon other parts of the body working in certain ways. The heart cannot go out and jog. But if you do not exercise, if you don't move your legs, your heart will grow sick. And 
I am told that if you don't actually feel some pain, you're probably not doing enough for your heart. It is the same with the church. The heart of the church will grow sick. The heart of the church risks a kind of death if the legs of the church do not stand and move. It is the case at this church that we have been blessed with a history of very able men. And we have not struggled from year to year to identify able men. This past year, we struggled to find a sufficient quantity of willing men. My point is not to lay a burden on any of those particular men, because there's a variety of reasons why people are or are not willing. Sometimes it's because they are fully invested in other works that would conflict time-wise. And no one of us is called to be superhuman. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of Harvest for more workers, not super workers. And so you have to ask, what is a reasonable, what's a balance in terms of the time commitment and all of those things? But it is a fact, just accept it. If you will not exercise, if you won't feel the burn, then you are going to have a sick heart. And if I speak in particular to the men. If the men of this church, the up-and-coming men, will not take their role, if they will not feel the burn, at least for a short period of time, the body will suffer. Set aside yourself. The body needs us in that way. Similarly, there are those who simply hang about the church for a variety of reasons. You think think about the earlobe. What is its function? There is some debate, but it seems, it seems to serve no other function than to simply hang about, to adorn the body with its presence. How many do you need? How has God set up the body? Even so, the Lord has not appointed for there to be many who simply hang about the church. We have roles to play. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You have these gifts because you have a duty, and that duty brings about vitality, brings about flourishing, brings about mutual joy. So we've seen this morning that the Spirit reminds us to picture God's people as a body. In the first place, I exhort you, look again to the goodwill that means Christ has towards you, towards every part. Start there. He's the provider. He has goodwill. He's the Lord, but he's a Lord who loves. And then I ask you, every one of you, are you vitally united with Jesus Christ by his spirit, through faith? What evidence is there, according to the scripture of that, in your life? Do you long to obey Christ as your head more than you have? Do you desire greater healthy union and communion with the people of God? Do you want that, however imperfect it is? If you do not, then I say it because the word says it. You are not, you should not think of yourself as being a member of Christ's true church until there is repentance there. You think of the story in the gospel. Maybe you don't even know it. There's a uh, portion of the gospel where the apostle Peter time when he is simply a disciple, he comes to Jesus' defense in a way that Jesus has not asked him to. He draws a sword and he cuts the ear off of 
the servant of the high priest. Some of us are like that. Only we are the ones holding the sword against ourselves, depriving the body, cutting a part of it off. If that ear just sits there, what will happen to it? It will die. But in that same gospel story, Jesus picks up the ear of his own enemy and he puts it back on his head and heals him. Even so, look to Christ. The promise of the gospel is that he can take what is dead and he can unite it. He can bring about life. He calls you confess your sin, but also believe upon his forgiveness and his transforming power. He says, I will not turn away anyone who comes to me. But if you will not receive the warning, there was a church father, Cyprian, who famously said, whoever will not have the church for their mother cannot have God for their father. Similarly, you might say, whoever will not have the people of God for their body cannot have Christ for their head because the Holy Spirit works that desire in his people. Finally, I want to encourage you in your response. If you desire Christ for your head, if you desire the people of God for your body, then invest yourself in service. Now, I said invest. I did not say burn yourself out. And you need to be honest about your limits. But on the other hand, you also have to be honest about your neglect if you are neglecting. And there is the broader body. Maybe you are invested in things that benefit the church outside of these walls as well. That's not my point. But let this shape and transform you. Let me give just one or two other examples here, and then we'll close. Some of this, you know, you have people who are really kind of health-oriented, and they spend a lot of time figuring out how can they benefit the body in ways that you didn't ever, you're not even thinking about. They know the vitamins by the entire alphabet. And you know, like, C and maybe D. We can look down on that person. I don't think we should. There's probably some wisdom there. Similarly with the church, though, it is relatively few and far between that people pour into asking, how can I bless this church? Most people just take it as it comes. One example among so many, uh, in the prayer, there's no hiding the fact, my mom recently passed away. And several of my younger siblings were initially going to handle some of the funeral aspects. As a pastor, I happened to have been exposed to some of that already. And so there were some things that I knew in terms of that process, very practically. And it hit me as, you know, because whether or not you know some of these things could be the difference between a $36,000 funeral or a much more affordable funeral at a time when people are grieving and liable to be preyed upon, etc. And all of just the time commitment, the burden of that. And it struck me, what if in this church and every church of reasonable side, there was one or two people who just know the ins and outs of dealing with death in this area? They know the funeral homes. They know who's trustworthy, who's fair. They can handle those things on behalf of the congregation so that if somebody passes, you can call a member of that church and say, hey, we'd be happy to take this on for you if you want us to at no charge. That's just one. Imagine it. there are so many. As the church grows larger, we can become more specialized in our service. And the body becomes more healthy. The body becomes more healthy. That's what it's about. The Lord desires these benefits for us.
Finally, again, I already mentioned the officers. They are not more valuable in the eyes of Christ. But without them, the church cannot function. Not for very long. We definitely need people who are willing to serve. And our elder Jeff prayed also that the Lord would raise up pastors. Where are they going to come from, if not from this church? Are we going to imagine that they come from other churches? That's where pastors come from. You go to the pastor grocery store, and you get pastors over there. They will never come from here. That's the wrong mindset. God alone chooses who has certain gifts. But our prayer and what we seek, God, if you will, we're going to plant the seed and do everything we can that from this church are the kinds of people who would be pastors or pastors' wives, because that's a whole skill set too. Or who would be elders, elders' wives, deacons. Not because they're more important, but because they're like a backbone. Everything's tied to them. We need to be serious about the health of the body or the mission fails in Phoenix. This is not a social club. I don't think you think it is one. But we need to be passionate because Christ is passionate for his body. With that in mind, let's go before him and ask him to do this very thing now. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us in uniting us with Christ our head. We are not worthy, Lord. We feel like hangnails, all of us, or worse. We are, in many ways, sick because of our sin. And we have a hard time feeling connected to others who, in secondary matters, are so very different than us. Help us, Lord, to deal with compassion, to clothe one another with dignity and honor, not to envy any or to despise any, but that if they possess your spirit, we look upon them as those beloved by Christ. We ask that you would help us not only to feel a dependence such that we place ourselves among all God's people regularly, but also that you would instill in us a healthy sense of spiritual duty, that we would desire to fulfill the functions that you have given to us, Help us to do this in order that we might discover more and more the joy of participating in your mission. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.